He said, sure, I'll come. And he's here, and we're happy to have him here. Bud is, I ought to say that, you could also call him uh, Dr. James Robertson, professor of history at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University at Blacksburg, Virginia. He's our Life Honorary Member. Received our Nevins Freeman Award in 1981. He's really a distinguished Civil War historian. He earned his PhD at Emory University, where he studied under a distinguished Civil War scholar, Dr. Bell Wiley. He's written and edited over 22 books, written over 150 articles, and writes regularly for the Civil War Times. I have something in common with Bud I just mentioned to him. We both play jazz and, and jazz bass to earn our ways through school, but he has a, he has a one-upmanship on me. He played in a burlesque house. I didn't. <laughs> but <laughs> nevertheless, he teaches the largest Civil War class in the country, over 500 students, and also a summer seminar so well known that there's a long, long waiting list. You can't get on until you wait a couple of years, I understand. He's very active in athletics, especially in varsity football, represents his university at the College Football Association, and officiates at varsity games and in three post-season football games. Tonight, he will talk on one of our distinguished military leaders of the Confederacy, General A.P. Hill. His biography of General Hill is now in the printing stage and will be issued shortly. It's really a distinct privilege for me to introduce Dr. James Robinson, known more affectionately to as many friends at this round table as Bud. Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul, and ladies and gentlemen, what a pleasure it is to be back here. And I must say that I had put a moratorium on speeches this year so I could work on the A.P. Hill biography, which is a long way from being printed. I'm back upstairs in my room now. I'm doing the preface. Uh, the rest of the book is done. I'm doing the preface to, <laughs> toward the end. And I did do something rather strange. I wrote the preface first. And now that I have written the book, I'm going back to look at the preface to see if things, after it's all over with, lived up to expectations at the, be at the beginning. And apparently they have, so I'm, I'm delighted that it, to be finishing it up. Of course, I would come out here. This is one of the first round tables to which I ever had the distinction of speaking when I got out of graduate school. And I was a young, untested assistant professor at the University of Iowa, just west of here, when you all invited me here. And then in 1981, you gave me an honor that very few laborers in the Civil War vineyard ever have the privilege to receive. And I'll never turn down an invitation to come out, out here. I can tell you that and very, very proudly. If you can't hear me in the back, uh, I'm coming through gobbled. It's because you are hearing Americanese for the first time, pure <laughs> American. <laughs> so just listen closely. Don't pay much attention to the content. Just listen closely. I had a great joke to tell, but Paul gave such a fine introduction. I'll tell it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite presidents is William Howard Taft. Taft tipped in at 365 pounds, and, and um, he was he's the only president we've ever had who got hopelessly stuck in the White House bathtub. <laughs> and Taft had two particular hang-ups, I mean, with a 54-inch waist, you can imagine. He was very, very sensitive about his waist, about my references to his size, and he could not, like I, stand long introductions. And so once he went to New York to give a speech right after becoming president in 1909, and the New York people, not realizing his hang-ups, invited Mr. Chauncey Depew, who was chairman of the board in New York Central, to introduce the president. Now, Mr. Depew, in the language of that day, was loquacious, which meant he was long-winded as hell. And he got up to introduce Taft, and he started introducing, and 55 minutes later, he was still introducing. And by then, the perspiration was just pouring off Taft, and he was squirming and squidging and squinting and flinching and fidgeting and whatnot, and in one of these endless ordeals, and finally, Mr. Depew got through. And to the horror of the president, he closed up his introduction by saying, and now, ladies and gentlemen, I have a great honor to present to you a man pregnant with wit, pregnant with statesmanship, pregnant with political acumen, the president of the United States. And Taft got up just fit to be tired. He'd listened to all that and then had the references to his side. He stood at the microphone for a moment, and he began to, to pat this huge girth. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, 
If it is a boy, I shall name it George Washington Taft. If it is a girl, I shall call her Martha Washington Taft. But if it is, as I suspect, merely gas, I will name it Chauncey Diffuse. <laughs> May I say what a thrill it is to be among friends, too. Uh, Marshall and I were talking about it at dinner tonight. He asked about officiating. Last year was the worst year in 22 years I've had on the gridiron. I got a concussion in the first game, Navy at Carolina. I got a black eye in, in the Duke-Carolina game. And then at the end of the year, I had the dubious distinction of being the only football official in America called the son of a bitch from coast to coast. I had the Merlin Clemson game on national television, and I made a very critical call with about 30 seconds left in the game, a touchdown call that gave the ball game to Merlin. And Coach Ford from Clemson came out on the field, and when he did, that wonderful technician of CBS stuck that Zoom mic right at him and caught it in every living syllable of the phrase when, when he came out to get me. So it is, a, as I say, a pleasure to be among friends. I don't get that. That opportunity too long. My wife called this afternoon to say that the ACC letter had just come in. I've got nine games this fall, and I'll bet you anything in the world one of them is Clemson at Merlin. I just <laughs> feel it in my bones. I have spent three years with A.P. Hill. I killed him last Tuesday at 2.15, and I was in the doldrums the rest of the week, and I suppose anyone who's ever written biography will, will know what I'm talking about. When you recreate a man, you put life back into him and give him personality and have him laugh and get mad and love his wife and caress his children and fight so gallantly, and then you kill him. It's a terrible letdown, and I'm sure it sounds silly to a lot of you, but it's a terrible letdown because as a biographer, you're playing God. And so he died last week, and chapter 10 is finished. Fortunately, he didn't die like Stonewall Jackson. Death came to him instantly. Many of you know Rick Harwell, who was a great, beloved member of this round table. And when I was writing my dissertation under Dr. Wiley, and my dissertation was the Stonewall Brigade, and it comes that part over around chapter six or somewhere where Jackson died. And, you know, he was shot on May 3rd, and he lingered for a week. And I had just fallen so much in love with him, I couldn't kill him. And he comes Sunday afternoon, May 10th, and I was riding along in this draft on my dissertation. I had Jackson... Uh, coming and going in, in delirium, and his mind was drifting back to the blue-purple hills of West Virginia, and he was tossing feverishly in the bed, and finally that came to that moment when he breathed his last and with the great angels crossed over the river, and et cetera, and all this stuff. And I gave it to Rick Harwell to read, and Rick said, for God's sakes, why don't you just say he died? And, <laughs> and, I, I, tried, and I think if you look at the book, you'll see he died. Uh, <laughs> Well, we digress. Let's get to the subject at hand. The, the Hill book is finished. The manuscript will go to Random House, I guess, sometime next month. I want to read it one more time, and then it will go in. He possessed what a fellow soldier termed an unquenchable thirst for battle. He was a soldier's soldier, not a popular hero. He achieved high morale among his men because of an intuitive understanding of the citizen soldier combined with constant solicitude for that so citizen soldier's rights and comforts. He visited field hospitals to look after the sick and the wounded, gave his personal attention to the operation of all the supporting services, and made himself available to any private soldier who wanted to talk to him about anything. He worked ceaselessly to develop his amateurs into capable officers, always talking to them privately. By 1864, he was, said a Richmond newspaper, the abiding strength and dependence of Lee's army. General William Mahone added, a more brilliant, useful soldier and chivalrous gentleman never adorned the Confederate Army. Such was A.P. Hill, known to his men as Little Pile. Nurtured in the landed gentry of Northern Virginia, he was among the fifth generation of Hills in this country. He was born November 9, 1825, near Culpeper, and was the fourth of seven children to Colonel William Hill. He was christened Ambrose Pile in honor of an uncle. His elementary education was in a private academy, and he seems to have been an above-average student. In 1842, at the age of 16, he received an appointment to West Point. His roommate during his freshman year was a Pennsylvanian named George B. McClellan. 
Hill proved to be a solid rather than a brilliant cadet, both in class and in conduct. He had just entered his junior year when illness forced him to take an eight-month eight -month leave of absence. Upon his return to the academy, he applied himself more diligently to his studies, and he graduated 15th in the class of 1847. Commissioned a lieutenant in the 1st U.S. Artillery, Hill arrived in Mexico too late to see any but limited action in the field. For the next seven years, his duty assignments alternated between Mexico and Florida. A severe case of typhoid fever almost killed him during this period. In 1855, he transferred to Washington and became part of the Coastal Survey Service. It was in the five years before Civil War that Hill had his three most intense romantic developments or involvements. The first concerned a schoolmate of his younger sister, Lucy. Passion had seems to have been more ardent on the young lady's part than it was with Hill. And then came the rather famous love affair with Ellen Marcy. They fell madly in love, but her father, Captain Randolph Marcy, objected. Hill was a southerner associated with slavery, which, his fa which the father detested. Moreover, Captain Marcy had become enamored with another promising officer who had been courting Miss Marcy, Lieutenant George McClellan. Parental pressure brought an end to the engagement. Ellen married McClellan in 1860, and Papa, incidentally, became McClellan's chief of staff a year later. Shortly after the breakup with Miss Marcy, Hill went to a Washington party where he met Kitty McClung, the recently widowed sister of Kentuckian John Hunt Morgan. Romance blossomed slowly but steadily, and on July 18, 1859, the couple were married in Lexington, Kentucky. Their first child, a daughter, Henrietta, died in infancy. A second daughter, Frances Russell, would be born in August 1861, followed by Lucy Lee Hill in the autumn of 1863. Powell Hill was a proud Virginian and an ardent Southerner. He did not wait for the storm of civil war to break. On March 1, 1861, convinced that war was imminent, he resigned from the army. And when Virginia forces were organized weeks later, he was named the first colonel of the 13th Virginia. He became an easily recognizable officer. Five feet, nine inches tall, he was a slight build and weighed only 145 pounds. His hazel eyes would light up with almost steely glint in the excitement of battle. His curly hair was chestnut and worn long. He disdained gaudy uniforms and badges of rank. Instead, Hill customarily wore figured calico shirts, which his wife, Dolly, Kitty, or he called her Dolly, would knit for him. Occasionally, he would wear a shell jacket and always a black felt hat. While he liked to command in shirt sleeves, he was one of the few generals in the Confederate Army who habitually wore a sword. He almost also was rarely without a revolver, field glasses, and a pipe, which he enjoyed smoking regularly. Hill was also a hard swallower who liked an occasional drink, but tobacco seems to have been his most constant vice. To his intense regret, Hill and his regiment missed the fighting at First Manassas. They were assigned to guard the railroad depot. He became anxious that his lack of battle experience might hamper his advancement. However, his extraordinary talents in organization, drill, and discipline brought him to the attention of Confederate authorities. <coughs> and late in February 1862, he was promoted to Brigadier General and given command of Longstreet's old brigade of four Virginia regiments. <coughs> a month later, Hill literally double-timed his men from Manassas to Yorktown to meet the threat of invasion by a massive Union army under his old friend, George McClellan. The thin Virginian was impatient to taste battle, to demonstrate fitness for command, to do his part in the, great, in the Confederacy's great effort at independence. Hill's first real opportunity in battle came May 5th at Williamsburg, and he was no disappointment. At a critical moment in the fighting, the new brigadier sent in his regiments in slam-bang fashion. Although he took 300 casualties, Hill captured 160 prisoners, seven battle flags, and eight cannon. He was, said Douglas Freeman, the most conspicuous brigadier on the field. And such gallantry had to be rewarded. On May 26, scarcely four months after gaining a brigadier's rank, Powell Hill received promotion to Major General. He took command of the largest division the Army of Northern Virginia ever had, six brigades of Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia troops. The unit would become known as the Light Division, and I think that's one of those, uh, not acronyms, one of those words that means you call it one thing when it means the exact opposite. It was so heavy 
that it was known as the Light Division. In all likelihood, Hill may well have called it the Light Division because he was so proud of how fast he could march. And some of the brigade commanders in that division, men like Maxie Gregg and Dorsey Pender, James J. Archer and Edward Thomas, were among the best fighting generals Lee had. It was a new division commander in the Seven Days Campaign, and as such, that pal Hill of history emerged. On June 26, Hill and General Stonewall Jackson were to deliver a two-pronged attack on McClellan's northern flank. For some six hours, Lee's army stood poised, waiting for a tardy Jackson. Hill was wearing a red wool shirt. He would wear it often in combat, and his men would come to shout, little pals got on his battle shirt, look out. Near 3.30 p.m., Hill's thin patience at waiting all day for Jackson wore out. He determined to attack on his own rather than risk the failure of the whole plan by delaying any longer. Launching heavy assaults, would, which would be his trademark, Hill drove the Union Army through Mechanicsville, across open fields beyond and over swampy Beaverdam Creek. Yet try as hard as he could, Hill failed to break the Union line strongly fortified on high ground beyond the creek. He sustained heavy losses before sundown brought an end to the fighting. And in his official report, Hill made it rather specific as to whom he blamed for this whole disaster. It was never, he said, contemplated that my division alone should have sustained the shock of this battle, but such was the case. The next morning at Gaines's Mill, Hill again attacked viciously. His hope was either to break the Union line or at least to hold it in position until Jackson arrived and could envelop the flank. For two hours, the, the Confederates pounded the Union works. It was in the opening attack, which caught the, the Federals somewhat off guard, that a unique incident occurred. Billy Yank somehow knew of the pre-war rivalry between McClellan and Hill for the hand of Ellen Marcy. And that June morning, as waves of Confederates again advanced against the Union lines, a blue-clad sergeant squinted in the sunlight and hollered to no one in particular, for God's sakes, Nellie, why didn't you marry the other one? <laughs> After two hours of intense fighting against superior odds and again with Jackson still not on the scene, the light division was too battered to be of further use. Finally, around, around five in the afternoon, Jackson's men arrived on the field. Hill's exhausted troops could do little but follow up in the climatic attack which at last broke McClellan's line. Three days later, at Fraser's farm, Hill again was conspicuous. He was aligning his regiments for battle in the Pine Woods when General Lee and President Davis rode up for a first-hand view. Bullets and shells were splintering trees and tearing up the ground. What are you doing here? Hill shouted angrily at the two dignitaries. This is no place for either of you, and as commander of this part of the field, I order you both to go to the rear. Lee and Davis smiled and somewhat sheepishly rode away. By the end of the seven days, Hill had demonstrated characteristics that would mark his entire war career. For example, caution was not in his nature. Slow, careful analysis on the style of Longstreet was simply not to his liking. Hill was a fighter. He would always strike out at whatever loomed in his path, then consider the strength of the opposition later. Unfortunately, basking in the glory of the seven days was short-lived. When the Richmond Examiner carried a series of articles inflating Hill's accomplishments at Fraser's farm, Longstreet retaliated with newspaper articles of his own in the Richmond Whig. Verbal exchanges followed between the two men, culminating on July 7th with Longstreet placing Hill under arrest, and a duel seemed imminent. Lee considered Hill too good a field commander to be kept from activity, and the general certainly did not want to lose either of his principal subordinates on the field of honor. Hence, on July 27th, Lee assigned Hill and his division to Stonewall Jackson's command at Gordonsville. For Hill, this turned out to be jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Strained relations for years had existed between the two Virginians stretching back to their days at West Point. There is no doubt but that Hill <coughs> was bitter at Jackson's tardiness at the outset of the Seven Days Campaign. Jackson may already have considered Hill a might reckless in combat. In any event, Hill was a proud man who, while he commanded with a light hand, nevertheless was absolutely wedded to the chain of command system. Hill all too quickly chaffed at being kept in the dark as to Jackson's intentions. And on August 8, when Jackson altered marching orders without telling Hill, with the result that the light division was left standing in the road looking foolish and delinquent, relations between the two generals chilled noticeably. 
The next day, perhaps out of punishment, after all, Hill led the largest division in the army, Jackson put the light division in reserve and headed after Pope's army. Battle exploded at Cedar Mountain. By sundown, Jackson was hard-pressed. When he called for reinforcements, Hill in his shirt sleeves led his men quickly into action, stunting the Union counter-assaults and bringing victory with the sunset. Three weeks later, battle came again at Manassas. The light division formed Jackson's left, with at least one brigade taking position in a railroad cut. For two days, Hill's men beat back one federal attack after another. At one point in the fighting, Confederates out of ammunition hurled rocks to check the Union assault. Hill commanded most of the time on foot, seemingly tireless through the long and bloody hours. And at the end, he could report proudly, the battle being thus gloriously won, my men slept among the dead and dying enemy. The Light Division did most of the fighting on September 1 at Chantilly, and it was in that battle that Hill lost another close friend, Union General Philip Carney. Lee's army then advanced into Maryland. On September 4, during the march, Jackson rode into the ranks of the Light Division and issued new marching orders arbitrarily. Hill riding up front was not aware of the change until he looked over his shoulder and saw his division taking a different route. When he learned of Jackson's actions, which he regarded as a flagrant breach of military etiquette, Hill angrily galloped back until he found Jackson. Making no attempt to conceal disgust, Hill snarled, General Jackson, you have assumed command of my division. Here is my sword. I have no use for it. Jackson replied tersely, keep your sword, General Hill, but consider yourself under arrest. Hill would remain under arrest for a week, marching alone at the end of his division. Yet he did not take the affront silently, far from it. For the next seven months, whenever military inactivity permitted, Hill repeatedly demanded, one, a court of inquiry on Jackson's charges, and two, a court-martial of Jackson himself. On September 11, Hill was released from arrest as Jackson's forces began the envelopment of Harper's Ferry. A North Carolina officer stated of the moment when Hill was returned to command, donning his coat and sword, he mounted his horse and dashed to the front of his troops, and looking like a young eagle in search of his prey, he took command of his division to the delight of all the men. Jackson's animosity, however, still persisted. Following the surrender of the federal garrison at Harper's Ferry, Jackson directed Hill and his large division to remain behind and secure the ferry, while Jackson rushed northward with his forces to rejoin Lee at Sharpsburg. <coughs> McClellan there launched massive attacks on Wednesday, September 17, all along the banks of Antietam Creek. The sun had barely risen that awful day when Lee himself sent an urgent message for Hill and the Light Division to get out of Harper's Ferry and get to Sharpsburg as expeditiously as possible. And what followed is one of the unforgettable moments in American history. Hill got his division on dusty country roads and sent them double-timing northward on the 17-mile march. It was a terrible ordeal in which men fell out of ranks by scores. Dozens died of heat stroke, and Hill himself galloped up and down the lines, urging laggards on with the point of his sword. A more careful and methodical general, Longstreet, for example, would have set a slower pace, keeping his men together, mindful of the certainty of excessive straggling on too strenuous a march, and he would have arrived with all his men present or accounted for a couple of hours after the battle had been won or lost. Hill drove his men so cruelly that he left fully half of the light division panning along the roadside, but he got those who were left up in time to slam into Burnside on the Union left to save Lee's army, to stave off disaster, and to keep the Civil War going for two and a half more years. After Antietam Creek, Lee turned Hill the finest division commander in his army. He told President Davis that if a third corps were ever organized, Hill would be his choice to command it. Yet in those autumn months of 1862, Lee found himself acting a good deal of time as an intermediary because the Hill-Jackson feud had flared anew, with Hill demanding a court of inquiry for himself and a court-martial for Jackson. Lee spent one three-hour session with the two generals at one point in October and he sought to make peace by saying, he who has been the most aggrieved can be the most magnanimous and make the first overture of peace. It did not work. Hill was too proud, Jackson too inflexible, to yield. Yet Hill's chief of staff noted, 
On the field, Jackson and Hill were very polite, and no observer could have supposed that serious differences existed between them. On December 12th at Fredericksburg, Hill made a major tactical error. He was placed in command of Jackson's front, just to the north of Hamilton's Crossing. Immediately in front of one portion of his line was a boggy marshland. Hill became too concerned for the comfort of his men. Reluctant to jeopardize the health of the soldiers in a cold, damp swamp, which he considered totally impassable, Hill left that sector of his front unmanned. It was precisely that sector through which George Meade's Pennsylvania Division charged the next day. Fighting was severe and casualties heavy. Hill's line bent dangerously before reinforcements arrived to drive back the Federals. It could have been a Southern disaster. Instead, it became part of one of Lee's easiest victories in the war. After the Battle of Fredericksburg, a chaplain wrote, I remember seeing Hill visiting, as was his custom, his field hospitals, looking after the comfort of his wounded, and with his own hands lifting some of the poor fellows into more comfortable positions. The winter months of 1863 were anything but quiet at Hill's headquarters. He insisted more and more on a hearing relative to Jackson's charges against him. It was a time to settle this matter, he insisted, with either Jackson or himself suffering proper punishment. Finally, Lee had enough. The commander simply began ignoring Hill's letters. A heated exchange of correspondence then erupted between Hill and Jackson. The extent to which it might have gone is speculated, for Chancellorsville ended the whole affair. It is hardly surprising that on Jackson's famous flank march around the Union Army, Hill again comprised the rear guard. The May 2nd Confederate attack was devastating. The light division entered the action near sundown. Jackson was striving to drive the Federals back as far as he could before darkness. As Hill arrived in the woods with his men, Jackson shouted, Press them! Cut them off from the United States Ford Hill! Press them! And then, for probably the only time in the Civil War, Jackson rode out to reconnoiter in person. He was galloping back through the dark woods with Hill and staff members when naturally edgy soldiers in the 18th North Carolina did as they were told and opened fire on the riders. When aides rushed to the scene, they found Hill on the ground, tenderly holding Jackson's head and shoulders. Dislikes had been forgotten in an instant. The brilliant commander was down. A medical team soon arrived. Hill started off to get his own command stabilized when another volley from Confederate troops sent him swaying in the saddle. He received a flesh wound in the calf of his leg. While it was not a dangerous injury, it was crippling enough so that Hill, who had momentarily been in charge of the Second Corps, had to, to relinquish command to General Jeff Stewart. Jackson died on May 10th. A week later, Lee told President Davis that Hill was still the best major general in the Army. Accordingly, on May 26, 1863, Pal Hill was promoted to Lieutenant General and given the newly created Third Corps. Now out from beneath Jackson's rigidity, now on a par with Longstreet, Hill had the opportunity to demonstrate his real talents for high command. His enthusiasm was deep as the Army of Northern Virginia struck northward into Pennsylvania. Then, all too suddenly, came Gettysburg. Before dawn on July 1, Hill sent Henry Heath's division to Gettysburg to collect badly needed shoes and other supplies. He also put the divisions of Dorsey Pender and Richard Anderson on alert, and soon they too were moving swiftly to Gettysburg. And there, the first of several controversies begins. Sending so many men on what seemed the reconnaissance sparked much post-war verbiage, for once the two armies met, they collided in such numbers that breaking off the battle was impossible. Thus has Hill joined others by being blamed solely for the Battle of Gettysburg. On the other hand, securing supplies was a major aim of the invasion in the first place. Further, Vietnam surely taught us that inviting battle with one hand tied behind you can end up being no battle at all. Hill covered his reconnaissance with strength. To have done less would have endangered his soldiers. And finally, as a lasting testimonial, Lee, in his own official report, stated that the collision at Gettysburg was, in his word, unavoidable. Illness struck Hill before the battle started that day, and this would be the first of at least four major attacks which he would suffer in the field. The first attack was a short duration. Hill was well enough the following day to climb a tree so as to get a view of the fighting on July 2nd. On July 3rd, his North Carolina division assisted Pickett in the final climactic and bloody assault on Cemetery Ridge. While Virginians have long boasted of their sacrifices that day, 
Kedigrews, North Carolinians, deserve equal merit in my estimation. They took frightful losses, including Company F of the 26th North Carolina, which lost all 90 men in the charge against Cemetery Ridge. Hill's conduct as a corps commander at Gettysburg was not extraordinary. He was barely in evidence after the first day. However, he displayed both alertness and forcefulness on July 14 when he smashed the federal probe at Falling Waters, thereby saving Lee's real elements from possible envelopment. He spent the late summer and early autumn in rebuilding his battle-battered corps. And then came the lowest moment in Hill's Civil War career. In October, the Union Army stretched out north of Culpeper. To remove this menace, Lee determined to try and turn Meade's western flank, then assault the Federals somewhere on their retreat toward Washington. On October 9th, Lee put his army in motion. Hill must have been pleased. He did not like inactivity. Union forces were occupying his home area of Culpeper, and his debut as a corps commander at Gettysburg had been less than spectacular. He was eager to do battle. And so he led his divisions forward at a fast pace. On October 14, he arrived at Bristow Station. And low right down below him on the plain, he saw the Union Third Corps seemingly isolated, trying to get across the rain-swollen Rappahannock River. Here was a chance for victory, Hill quickly concluded. And here at Bristow Station was an opportunity to show everyone that he was, in truth, a competent and fighting Lieutenant General. And so on the afternoon of October 14th, Hill unleashed two brigades and sent them charging across the open expanse toward the Third Corps. Hill had no inkling whatsoever that the Union's Second Corps lay concealed behind a railroad embankment squarely on his right flank. It was as fine a trap as could have been devised by a month's engineering. Two brigades came under a concentrated crossfire from two full corps. The Southern assault lasted 40 minutes. It cost Hill 1,500 casualties. The next day, a shocked Lee rode with Hill over a battlefield abandoned, save for scores of bodies strewn on the ground. Hill attempted to explain what happened, and then in uncharacteristic fashion, Lee interrupted him. Well, well, General, he said. Bury those poor men and let us say no more about it. Two observations, I think, are in order about Hill at Bristow Station. First, I'll, I praise him because I think he demonstrated an uncommon honesty among all Civil War generals, blue and gray, because he frankly admitted in his official report that he and he alone had made a mistake. I am convinced, he wrote, that I made the attack too hastily. And secondly, if Hill's sickness was psychosomatic, as Douglas Freeman, Bud Warner, and others allege, Bristow Station would have put him to bed for an extended period. Such was not the case. He was ready to deliver massive assaults against the Union Army at Mine Run when Meade backed away from battle. The Confederate Army then went into winter quarters along the Rapidan. It was a happy time for Hill. His wife was with him, and in those quiet months she gave birth to another daughter named Lucy Lee, in honor of Hill's favorite sister and his most admired general. And General Lee was godfather when the child was christened in April 1864. And incidentally, Dolly Hill and the children were always in the field with him. Except when battles were pending, they accompanied General Hill in the field, lived at a home or tents, and just where he went, they went, unless he insisted they go to the rear. A month later, in May 1864, Lee's army hastened eastward into the wilderness to meet a new federal threat under General Ulysses Grant. The Army of the Potomac was coming back. And there, once again, Hill would make a tactical error, though the fault may not have been entirely his. Lee waited until Grant and the Union Army were snarled in the denseness of the wilderness. And then the Confederate commander had Hill and Ewell attack eastward on parallel roads. If Union superiority in numbers had not been so high, the Confederates might have achieved greater success. As it was, Hill's 15,000 men fought hard all day and held their own against an estimated 40,000 Federals. Lee was with Hill for most of the day's action. One Southern officer said of Hill that May 5th, Surrounded by his staff, this beloved general, whose custom it ever was to feel in person the pulse of battle, sat, the stately presence anxiously awaiting the issue of events. Darkness brought a merciful end to the fighting. Hill's troops were out on their feet. The night was dark and understandably confusing. To suggestions that he pull back his lines, consolidate, and prepare earthworks, Hill said no. To do so would be to leave scores of wounded men at the mercy of the enemy and the elements. The other soldiers were worn out from days of hard combat, 
they did not need to spend the night walking back and forth in the darkness and preparing works. Besides, Lee uh, Hill kept insisting, Longstreet and his corps were due to arrive around 1 a.m. Certainly by dawn, there was no need to worry. And so Hill, once again presuming another general's punctuality, opted to see to his men's well-being rather than to fortify his thin line. The next morning, with Longstreet nowhere in sight, the Union 2nd Corps and other blue-coated brigades slammed into Hill's disjointed lines. Southern units were forced back with Lee's lines constantly at the edge of, of snapping in two. It's during this time that we have the famous Lee to the rear incident, in which the Texas Brigade, the lead element of Longstreet's troops, finally got on the field about 9 o'clock that morning. Hill was also in the thick of the action as he sought to rally his soldiers. With Longstreet's arrival, defeat was averted, and late in the afternoon, the Confederates attacked. On the evening of May 7th, Little Powell was struck by a severe attack of illness. He could not sit up. His strength had obviously failed. Since he could not mount a horse and was in no condition for any strenuous activity, he asked Lee to relieve him temporarily of command. Jubal early took over the Third Corps. In the movements of the next few days, Hill rode prostrate in a wagon at the rear of his beloved regiments. He was sufficiently well by May 21st to resume Corps command. Two days later, Hill stopped the flanking column of Federals at Jericho Mills on the North Anna River. There, he repeated a mistake by counterattacking with but part of his corps. He blunted the Union advance, but was himself forced back. A disappointed Lee, seriously ill himself at the time, heatedly asked for Hill why he did not do as Jackson would have done and attack with his whole force. The still weak Hill, who never argued with his commander, made no response even though the time element and Lee's frame of mind were more at fault than any wrongdoing by Hill at the North Anna. Three weeks later, Grant got a jump on Lee, crossed the James, and dashed for Petersburg. Lee gave desperate pursuit. Hill's speedy arrival on June 18 at Petersburg reduced the odds against Lee from unbearable to the accustomed two to one. On June 22nd, Federals attempted to swoop around Lee's right along the Jerusalem Plank Road. Hill promptly launched one of those fiery, savage attacks in which Confederates ba badly manhandled some eight Union divisions. Hill's greatest talent as a general was as a tactician in the deployment and fighting of troops in an established situation. At Petersburg, the condition at last were ideal for the projection of Hill's talents in Corps command. Hence, a high-ranking officer noted, from June 1864 through March 1865, Every federal effort to break Lee's right was met and defeated by General Hill with promptness and without heavy loss on his part. At Petersburg, Hill became a familiar figure in calico shirt, long gauntlets, a black slouch hat, and the ever-present sword buckled to his waist. He led his men to victories at the crater, Green Station, Peoples Farm, Burgess Mill, and the Weldon Railroad. Hill was always pleased at his successes, but he now displayed little elation. He had won these kinds of victories before under happier circumstances. But Dolly and the two children were with him now, and away from the battlefield they were his life. And I've been fortunate enough to find a rather sizable catch of field papers in his letters, which are highly personal and truly moving. For example, just before Christmas 1864, Hill wrote this to his little sister Lucy. We are just as comfortable as people can expect to be in these times. The children are growing so rapidly and doing so well. Russie is as fat as a butterball and the greatest little talker you ever saw. And your little namesake, Lucy Lee, is certainly the sweetest churl, little cherub ever born, gentle and genial as a May morning. During the long siege of Petersburg, a staff officer observed he was constantly on the lines, riding with firm, graceful seat, looking every inch a soldier. One staff officer and a single courier formed his usual escort. His expression was grave but gentle. However, Hill was seriously ill now. As I will point out in the book, he is dying now. First in February, then in March, he was unable to perform his duties. For a month, he was on sick furlough at the estate of a kinsman on the James River up from Richmond. Compounding the situation was the fact that Dolly was pregnant again with the child expected in late spring. Hill was extremely weak in mid-March when he visited Richmond with a cousin. He was having a group conversation when the subject came up of the possible evacuation of the capital. Hill is supposed to have replied, for my part, I do not wish to survive the fall of Richmond. 
And then toward the end of March, when it was quite obvious that Grant was marshalling the Army of the Potomac for the great spring assault, Hill abandoned his sick furlough to return to his thin lines. Let me stop at this point and say, with all candor and deep affection, I'm not going to answer any question about Hill's illness. Uh, he has been accused of having everything from hepatitis to psychosomatic disorder to tuberculosis to God knows what else. Uh, recurring malaria, recurring yellow fever, there's no such thing. Uh, and things such as this. Uh, we have pinpointed his disease. I'm waiting for some final verifications now. And Random House, which is going to publish the book, has asked that it not be released. I can assure you of one point, though. The current thesis running around the field that Hill was a manic depressive does not hold at all. His disease was real, and it was physical. He was in the saddle all day long on April 1st, 1865, as Grant's army hammered at the deteriorating southern line. Around 10 p.m., he returned to the cottage where Dolly and the children were staying. He went to bed, but he could grab only a short nap. Around 1.45 a.m. on Sunday, April 2nd, he was wide awake. For an hour, he lay in bed next to his pregnant wife and listened to the artillery fire. He then got up and in the darkness rode over to Lee's headquarters. He was neatly dressed in that casual way so familiar to everyone who knew him. Just before dawn, soldiers, cannon, and wagons began rushing past Lee's command post. A new Union breakthrough had occurred only a mile and a half away. It was a desperate moment, and Lee was issuing orders when Hill, with only his favorite courier, Sergeant George Tucker, bounded into the saddle and galloped to the front. It was possibly little more than 6 a.m. when the two men rode into woods wet and glistening from early morning dew. Suddenly, Hill and Tucker came upon two Union soldiers who had become separated from their command. Stay where you are, Tucker said to Hill. I will ride forward and get their surrender. But Hill continued to ride beside Tucker the two men calling on the Federals to surrender as they pointed revolvers at the tree behind which the two Federals were crouched. The Bluecoats hesitated for a moment, then both of them took quick aim and fired. One missed, but the bullet from the musket of Corporal John Malk of the 138th Pennsylvania tore off Hill's left thumb before it plowed through his heart. The general killed instantly fell heavily to the ground. Tucker managed to get away. He rode back to Hill to Lee's headquarters and conveyed the sad news to Lee, whose eyes swelled with tears. He is at rest now, said Lee, and we who are left are the ones to suffer. A chaplain in Hill's corps stated at that moment, and though Hill knew no tender care, as did Jackson, no weeping friends, as did Stuart, the swift winged messenger of death left neither wanting. His death groan was lost in the roar of battle, his death couch moistened with the blood of his comrades, and for his requiem was heard a nation's wail. Staff members recovered Hill's body about a half an hour after he was killed. Two kinsmen bore the remains to Richmond with the hope of burying Hill in Hollywood Cemetery. Yet that night they found the city gone mad. Evacuation and destruction were in progress. Mobs and crowds jammed every street and obliterated all order. A coffin was finally secured in an abandoned undertaking establishment, and the following two uh, morning two days later, Hill was buried on his cousin's upriver estate. In June 1865, Dolly gave birth to a child. She had hoped for a son and namesake. It was another daughter. It was christened A.P. Ann Powell. The child lived three years. In the autumn of 1867, Hill's body was transferred to a plot in Hollywood Cemetery, and there it lay under a curbing stone until 1891, when the remains were moved the third and final time to beneath a simple but beautiful stature at a West Richmond intersection. And today, hundreds of automobiles flash by the monument daily, but few, if any, drivers give a thought to the soldier of the South who sleeps beneath the bronze and stone. Like every other major Civil War figure, A.P. Hill had his share of controversy. And now, in an age when it is fashionable to find fault, judgments of the little general have not always been kind. Yet a fair balance can and should be struck. Genial, approachable, and affectionate in private life, he was restless and impetuous in battle. He did not hesitate to risk heavy losses for substantial gains. But he was prompt in moving his troops, maintained loose but good discipline, and had the respect of his subordinates and the unquestioning confidence of his soldiers. With but few exceptions, 
Every Confederate who fought under A.P. Hill regarded him with a brotherly, intimate affection. Unlike Jackson, who seemed always to demand the superhuman, and Longstreet, who carefully weighed all verbals and painstakingly attended to every detail, Hill commanded with a pleasant, light touch. He gave comparatively less attention to preparatory details and far more attention to the welfare of his men. A North Carolinian who served with him for much of the war stated, General Hill was firm without austerity, genial without familiarity, and brave without ostentation. The gentleman and soldier were so completely blended in him that he never had to deviate from one to act the other. But the grandest tribute of all, and perhaps the most appropriate, came shortly after the war from Colonel Charles Venable, who served on Lee's staff. And Venable wrote this. When General Hill fell one of the knightless generals of that army of knightless soldiers, on the field he was the very soul of chivalrous gallantry. In moments of the greatest peril, his bowing was superb and inspiring in the highest degree. The name of A.P. Hill stands recorded high on the list of those noble. Knightless generals of that army of knightless soldiers. On the field, he was the very soul of chivalrous gallantry. In moments of the greatest peril, his bowing was superb and inspiring in the highest degree. The name of A.P. Hill stands recorded high on the list of those noble sons of Virginia, at whose roll call grateful memory will ever answer, dead on the field of honor for the people he loved so well. Thank you very much. I think now you'll know when the biography of A.P. Hill is published to be truly a major work in the Civil War history. But, as is our custom, for any questions, I'd like to give you this token of our esteem, presented to James I. Robertson, Jr. Should it say Ph.D. as well? Should, okay. <laughs> Let's see. For a gallant service, the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago June 6, 1986. Also, there's something else here, too. Well, one of our members, Ben Carlton, who's in the audience, would like to present you with a portrait of A.B. Hill by our artist member, Jim Katori. Thank you, Ben. Ben, would you stand up? Ben Carlton and Miss Car Mrs. Carlton. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Ben is a Virginian from Middlesex County. And Culpepper, and also a, a great, great nephew, right, of A.P. Hill. So member family. And I might say that Mr. and Mrs. Carlton had just been married two weeks ago. They're newlyweds. So let's give them a hand as well. <laughs> now, questions. Nothing about A.P. Hill's health illness. <laughs> Random House is publishing it, so uh, that's it. Uh, the manuscript is going in in late July. How long it will take them to publish it thereafter, I don't know. Generally, it goes out to two readers, and they've got the figure cost estimates and all of that. One year, hopefully. Two years, for sure, I would, I would hope. I'm not sure I can draw a comparison between Hill and, and, and Hood. Hill was not as impetuous as Hood. I, I always envisioned John Hood as one of these duck your head and drive straight ahead kind of guys. I think they both, and, and I hate to tell everything that's in the book, you won't buy it. Huh? <laughs> I think they both are, are victims of Peter's Law. I, I think Corps Command was above Hill because his great forte was as a division commander, a fighting commander, and sitting behind the lines trying to carry on administration, delegate authority, attend the paperwork and whatnot was just not Hill's bag. And people have often said, well, yeah, but by the time he got to Petersburg, he was a great corps commander. 
And my rejoinder to that is, no, he was not, because his core was no larger than the division. And he was right back down to the size of a fighting unit, which his, quote, quote, light division had been. And in that way, he could go out into the field and direct them. He was really a division commander at Petersburg the last nine months of the war. I might add, too, that I failed to bring out, uh, Hill commanded the Petersburg sector. The other half of Lee's army was up around the Richmond front, Fort Harrison, and north of the Appomattox River. Every battle you hear of in the Petersburg sector was against A.P. Hill. Indeed, Colonel Walter Taylor of Lee's staff said something to the effect that the history of the Petersburg campaigns is the diary of A.P. Hill. Everybody who writes about the Stonewall Jackson A.P. Hill feud seems to point out that the greatest sinner in this whole thing was Jackson, who continually left Hill in the dark, made him look foolish, uh, assumed that he would know things that he couldn't possibly know. Why didn't Lee, in your opinion, come and quietly talk to Jackson on his side and tell him to stop all this nonsense? I know he couldn't have assigned I would give two answers to your question. One, it was not in Lee's nature to be that specific to his subalterns. Lee never told his generals how to command corps, which may have been a fault of Lee, and that's, again, good roundtable speculation. Uh, secondly, Lee did admonish Jackson to do precisely that. When on uh, July 21st, I think it was 1862, when Lee informed Jackson that Hill was coming, Lee, in very diplomatic language and what's not, said something to the effect, and I'm, I'm just paraphrasing, if you take this man into your confidence, he will be a superb colleague or compatriot or something like that. Jackson never heard that or understood it. The book will get me into trouble uh, <laughs> because uh, I have tried to, to follow a fog theory of war, which Dr. Freeman practiced, and I have tried to do the, the thing biographers most ideally try to do. I've tried to see the war through Hill's eyes. You know, many of you familiar with my career know I've lived with Stonewall Jackson for a quarter of a century, and yet for the first time I am highly critical of Jackson because I see him as Hill sewing. And it's easy to dislike Jackson when you see him from the perspective of a Hill or someone like that. Any other questions? I'm so sorry to be coy about the illness. You all go ahead and enjoy Rusk Green's current thesis that he was a manic depressive. You know, enjoy it for a while. Kind of taste it and savor it and whatnot. And then I'll lay it on you in about a year or so. <laughs> Thank you.